Hi and welcome back to Love Letters Bound in Gold Handcuffs. At the end of the last episode, Roland was still preparing for the Surrealist Objects and Poems exhibition in London, whilst Lee, struggling with the boredom in Cairo, had gone on several trips, including one to the Wadi Rishrash Game Reserve. So this is another one of Lee's creamy airmail papered letters that she's typed on her typewriter and it's dated the 23rd of November and when she sent it to Roland she also included some colour transparencies which she calls codochromes in the letter. Almost simultaneously German and American scientists developed 35mm colour film. In Germany it was known as Agfacolor. In America it was known as Kodachrome. These two formats would dominate the world of colour photography for the next 20 years or so. Roland and Lee talk about sending Kodachromes to each other so that they can see things in colour. That was a big attraction of colour photography, the opportunity to see the world as the human eye saw it, rather than in black and white. But Printing and publishing colour photography was less straightforward and very expensive. Processing this film was also very expensive and needed specialist equipment. Unlike black and white film, which could be done in a home darkroom with minimum skill, colour, transparency and ectochrome needed specialist equipment. And much of that was not in Egypt. My darling, I'm making this a letter after all, instead of an enclosure with filling. Eric, my brother, says that you can get duplicates of Kodachrome in America, always transparencies, but that for a shilling each in New York you can get paper printouts of a Duffy colour. You might start a correspondence with Duffy colour directly instead of through Wallace Heaton to see what the possibilities are. I'm sending in this envelope only the colour pictures, which you should do as you feel with them for printing. Possibly it isn't true or it isn't worthwhile to send them all the way to America, or can be done later again. I seem to have run off with a great many things belonging to your collections, especially in the film and print line. I seem to have great collections of duplicate prints, mostly of the last ones you took and had printed. Also, I have three of the fishnet bobbins and not nearly enough letters from you to open them with. I got three letters from you and Alex, and now two here in Cairo in the same post. The last one, first read, and a copy of Cahiers d'Art, which is all Picasso, and seems all the more dazzling here, so far away. It's nice that you think of and save me from isolation from that particular world. So far my contacts with people in Egypt are most unproductive. The only person who knows or cares about any of the pictures and people with which I am concerned and interested is Robin Fedden, other than Aziz, who doesn't care, and the customs examiner, who knows them all by heart, the whole encyclopaedia from Miro, Dali, Breton, Paul. It's a queer little gent who looks like Ecrevis, a crayfish, and was interested to know that man was going to stop photography in favour of painting, and he's never been out of Egypt or seen an original painting by any of them. The fishing trip was rather a flop, not especially from the fact that I caught no fish, but the combination of people was unpleasant. Dinner at the hotel was so foul that nearly everyone was sick with some sort of food poisoning. 
I was bored and angry that Saturday morning post was so late that I had to go off to Suez before I could see if there was a letter from you, which there wasn't until this morning, Monday. Aziz sulked me on Saturday and the husband of the couple who got so on my nerves that I was full of subway elbows made me a declaration of love, which embarrassed and disgusted me. Fortunately, that sort of thing can easily be handled in Egypt by such supremely fatuous answers as You ought to be ashamed of yourself because you pretend to be Aziz's friend. Imagine saying such a thing without giggling. It's the only place on earth where I'm sure the mental and moral level would permit such a remark with a straight face. I looked at the Siwa pictures last night. Some of them are quite interesting, but none of them are exactly what I wanted or saw. Besides which, they all got a very bad development, but probably can be saved. My relation with Aziz are very difficult. You can imagine what my nerves and temper are like in that I haven't made love since I'm here. He's very irritable and worried about things, and I try and be patient and unquarrelsome because he's so often been like an angel with me. But I can't sleep and have the jitters all the time. I play hydraulic games and get into a stew and have started my old gesture of knocking things over. Thank God no one's here to make Freudian references about an upset sex life. I miss you terribly physically, that I've lost all perspective about my behaviour otherwise. I know I'm being hysterical and jittery and there isn't anything to do about that in that I can't just leave and come back to you now. Aziz is in such a state that I can't possibly tell him that I want to leave. And I myself am not sure that I really want to. If I had come back to find everything just the same, I could have judged the whole situation and realised better what exactly my relations with Aziz might continue to be. But as it is, there's nothing definitely the same as it was and nothing definitely different. The financial business situation is not at all bad. All those things have worked out very well. But the long hot summer and a period of acute business worry has beaten Aziz down. Plus the fact that although I haven't said or suggested as much, undoubtedly he senses some change in me. I'm upset about myself. When I got married after 15 years of fiddling around, I really did it for better or worse. I really thought that at last I was going to settle down and be consistently attached to someone. With that idea blown to hell by this summer and you, it makes me cynically suspicious of any attachment I might make. Of my love for you. Of living with you and always being with you. My always don't seem to mean much, do they? And yet I love you so much that I'm in a sort of ecstasy of agony most of the time, like the flagellant saints or hysterically repressed nuns who make a mystic marriage and torture themselves with imagined voices and are repentant of longed-for sins. I'm like a condemned person in a cell, full of self-pity, misery and sexual excitement. I long for you, darling, and I must come back. I don't see how I'll do it or when or what sense it makes if I do. But anything else is intolerable. All my love, Lee. Hampstead, 26th of November. My darling Lee, what has happened? A fortnight has gone since I have had a letter. Your last letter which nourished my secret hopes that kind of hope which one hardly dares to allow since it would be too painful were it not to come true. 
is steadily becoming an old wrinkled piece of history which travels round in my pocket. I think of all sorts of things trying to find a reason for your silence. Probably you are busy with your guests, out on a desert trip, enjoying yourself so that you have no time to write. Those are the healthy, sensible reasons which I tell myself must be the right ones. But even if they are, darling, you must remember how much even two words from you means to me. But there is a mechanism which gets going in spite of oneself, making all sorts of reasons for your silence seem equally possible. I am always the first to blame myself, and my incapacity to write in a letter what I really want to say may serve as an excuse if you have found my letters boring or stupid or feel no desire to answer them. Or worse than all that, perhaps you aren't well and can't write. All I can do is sit on myself and wait. Hoping daily to extract a letter out of the indifferent postman. Talking of sitting on myself for the last week, I have hardly had time to sit down at all. In the midst of my rush to get everything ready for the object show, Trepotin arrived and happily made himself quite indispensable by the help he gave me. Together we hung everything and put everything in place, changing it all from a left luggage office to a very intriguing show. Wow, it's good to hear in this letter that Tripotin, a.k.a. E.L.T. Mezens, is for once not the brunt of one of Roland's jokes. The private view at midnight was a roaring success. There were so many people that for about an hour the place was completely blocked with people packed so tight that they could neither get in or out. In the rooms upstairs, black velvet was served in generous quantities to all who could get to it, and after a spectacular fight between a young Welsh poet and an unknown drunkard who insulted him, one picture smashed, we finally left the gallery at 3.30, but I didn't get to bed until 5. I'll tell you about that later. The show looks really rather good, and a lot of people have been to see it in the last two days. Your hand with teeth bracelet is lovely. I am sending you a photo of it next to an object of mine, an object of Eileen's, and an object of Max's, and also a very grinny flashlight photo of me arranging Dali's woman. I will also send you a catalogue. The catalogue is not very good. The poems were collected by Herbert Reed, but are not mostly up to standard. Gascoigne's seems to me the best. There is no photo of my object or yours, because as I went to Paris at the moment they should have been sent in, they just didn't get done. The exhibition that Roland talks about, Surrealist Objects and Poems, opened on the 24th of November at midnight in Peter Norton's London Gallery. There were masses of people there. The young Welsh poet that Roland mentions was, in fact, Dylan Thomas. And it was opened by Herbert Reed, the very distinguished art critic of that time, who was dressed very formally and intoned in the voice of a BBC newsreader. If you were listening carefully, you will have heard the 13th stroke of midnight. This is the post-ultimate stroke which transports us to the world of steel swans and tender glaciers, to the fortunate handcuffs of manacled policemen pouring fire through feathered funnels into the vortex of our desires. Approach, for we have names to sell. 
angels of anarchy and machines for making clouds, the caged bunyip and the virgin washerwoman, do not weep for these objects. They are happy in their nests of wild stones. The dew machines sprinkle sphinxes' eyes on the gorse roots and the timetables. But, ladies and gentlemen, the jacket is off the peg and nature takes the chair. Of the 138 objects exhibited, 88 were Brits. There was work by Paul Nash, Julian Trevelyan, Eileen Agar, Geoffrey Graham, Roland Penrose and Lee Miller. But not by Conroy Maddox. Because even as those early stages of surrealism in Britain, there were frightful internal quarrels. And Maddox had decided that he was not going to exhibit his work with that lot. So he stayed out. People look back on that exhibition as surrealism really not so much becoming of age in Britain, but becoming part of Britain becoming dispersed within our culture in the way that it was to remain. Well, even to this day, it still does. And it was really the first platform for so many of those 88 British surrealist artists. The press has been taking a lot of interest and reproduced a great many photos of various objects. I enclose an example. In fact, the whole thing is creating a great deal of a stir than I had expected. Another surprise was to see, turn up at the private view, Max and Leonora Carrington. They had just arrived, one from Paris and the other from her home in the north, and are staying secretly together in town. Max is much better and his affairs have taken a healthier turn. Mary Burt, after more and even more amazing doings, has at last gone into a sort of convent. After all this show business which kept me running round London for so long, I have had two all-night festivities running, centering around the same people. The chief characters being Trepotin, his adored Ingborg, Douglas Cooper, his homosexual rival, Peter Norton of the gallery, the Yugoslav cutie Varna, and various others. Peter Norton, who is actually a lady, Lady Norton, she was the wife of Clifford Norton, who was a diplomat. She founded the London Gallery with her partner, Marguerite Strettel. Later, when her husband Clifford Norton was sent overseas, she sold the gallery to Roland in 1938. The night of the opening, Cooper asked us round to his flat after leaving the gallery, and an exceedingly comic duel of wit between him and Maisin, all centering on Ingborg, kept us up till five o'clock. Actually, Tripotin did very well and regained a lot of lost ground. So much so that he has now begun to realise that she is not really the girl for him at all. That she has a very difficult character, is not very beautiful, and has a laugh which he can't bear. The next night we all met at a grand jamboree party given by the Nortons, before they leave for Poland. All very grand in white ties and medals. The contrasts between his foreign office bald pates and her bohemians all trying to hide the stains and creases of their suits was pretty comic. 
but there was not enough drink and they yodelled on the staircase so that we all went on again to Cooper's flat where there was plenty of drink and the presence of Ingborg and Varna could be appreciated to its full. Varna is round, plump blonde, peroxide, and a genuine cutie who does not refuse a well-meant kiss. Everything finished very late, it's true, but quite without impropriety. Today, at last, I have been taking it easy. I lunched with Juanita, the little girl I told you of in my last letter at the Café Royale. Trepotin caught his train to Brussels, to everyone's astonishment, and I have come back to write to you, my love. You who eclipse everything and everyone else every time I think of you. I ordered you some books from Juemas this afternoon, the ones you asked for on surrealism. They consist of David Gascoigne's book written two years ago, but probably, to most amusing, one edited by Reed and pamphlet by Breton and Julien Levy's book. You probably have seen them all before, but they might come in useful to lend. By the way, did I tell you that I have bought for a man at his show in Paris a very good drawing of his? The girl in the hand, or rather, hand which become the bust of a girl. The girl in the hand that Roland talks about is actually quite a significant drawing by Man Ray. Its real name is Belle Main, Beautiful Hand, and it's an original drawing for a surrealist poem book called Les Mains Libres, which the poems are by Paul Eluard, and it was illustrated by Man Ray. It kind of shows the continued collaboration between the surrealist artists and the friendship group of Lee and Roland. This book was published in Paris 1937. Incidentally, Roland also has another drawing from the book called La Couture, which is a naked lady rolled up in some material and it looks like she's been cut by a pair of scissors. There's also a third element. In our collection here, we have this photograph of Lee by Man Ray where she's naked and leaning forwards and it's called Suicide. Man Ray used that photograph to make a further illustration for this book, Le Man Libre. In the illustration, he copies the photograph almost identically, but he gives her a whip in the foreground, and instead of just a normal shadow underneath her, he makes a kind of hatching with his pen and writes his name in the shadow. You wouldn't notice unless you knew what to look for. Darling, I must bring this scribbling to an end. I only hope you can read my writing without too much difficulty and that my letters don't really bore you. I want you so much. I want to talk to you, to kiss you, to love you. I can hardly bear to look at your photos any more. You seem so far, so silent, and my hopes so hopeless. But I can't forget you, in spite of my occupations. And you are, whether you know it or not, close to me. In my arms, which ache with the weight of your absence, all the time, day and night, Lee, my love, write to me. Give me some clue as to what you are thinking and doing. I love you as you know, perhaps more than you know. Roland Hampstead, 5th of December, 1937 Darling Lee, this is hell. Another week has gone, and still no news of you. 
three weeks now since your last letter arrived. I have got more and more depressed and worried every day. What can have happened? I have written to you constantly, but have you ever got my letters? If only I knew that you were happy and well, and too much occupied with all sorts of amusement, that at least would quiet my worst fears. Forgive me, darling, for being grandmotherly, but even two words on a postcard would make an enormous difference in helping to renew my patience. Otherwise I feel sick and completely discouraged. I reread your last letters and can find nothing but understanding and affection. Nothing that foreshadows your sudden silence. I know you hate letter writing, and that the fact that you have written so often and at such length speaks for itself. But you must, darling, give me some clue as to what is happening. That is the only claim I really have a right to make. This week seems to have gone without my doing anything very remarkable. Apart from eating too much cheese one night at a party with Ingborg Eichmann and feeling rather bad afterwards. That was soon forgotten. The Ingeborg Eichmann that Roland ate too much cheese with later became a very well-known art historian. Eichmann's probably best known today for being a collector. She very wisely bought the most fabulously well-chosen pictures which are now to be found in some of the world's greatest museums. At this point, she was really studying um, Cubist works by Braque and Gris and Leger and Picasso. So she and Roland would have had a lot to talk about. But unfortunately, later she became very pally with the only enemy in the world that Roland had, a guy called Douglas Cooper, another art historian. And I think that might have made a bit of a distance between her and Roland. I've seen quite a lot of Varna, the Yugoslav girl. She is very amusing. Has a profile slightly like yours, but not nearly as beautiful and a laugh like Addie. I took her down to Limehouse one night and we ate rice with the Chinese and drank beer in the pubs. She is very pretty and very gay, so that I ought to be as happy as King Kong, especially as I have naturally had to explain the presence of your photo on my mantelpiece, and she thinks you marvellous and wants to meet you. She is going back to Yugoslavia soon. Max and Carrington are still in London. I see them quite often. Carrington is doing some successful bargaining with her parents, and it looks as though all were well for their future. The exhibition is going very well. Crowds of people and lots of press. Sandy Calder also has a show on at Freddie Mayer's gallery, so that Cork Street is given over to lunacy completely. Freddie Mayer, a wonderful flamboyant character, was an old friend of Roland's. He had founded the Mayer Gallery, which was really probably the first significant exhibition place for surrealism in Britain. I am getting your portrait photographed and will have it packed and sent off early next week. I heard a piece of news that came as a shock and will be even more of one to you. I'm afraid, for some people who work at Harper's Bazaar here in London, they say that Gerald Kelly died last week very suddenly in Paris. But they couldn't tell me much more, except that no one seemed to know whether he was an American or British. 
Peter Pollen, or Pullum, or whatever his name is, the fat pansy photographer who we met at the Rochas party, is also in London and was talking about this too. The Peter that Roland refers to here is almost certainly Peter Rose Pullum. And it's surprising that Roland was so caustic about him because this man was a good photographer. He made a series of photographs of Picasso in, in the late 30s. And uh, when he came to live in London, he really adopted quite a surrealistic style and painted some really interesting pictures, some of which are in important collections today. And later he continued to make contributions to the magazine Lilliput and publish articles on photography and so on. I just don't know why he and Roland just didn't seem to hit it off as well, but I guess that happens sometimes. I made an odd picture. Just finished a lot of hands out for a walk. In fact, I am at last getting back to my work and find it again my best refuge. The weather has turned foul. Winter, with all its grey bitterness, slowly descends, with occasional days of bright sun to set off the rest of the gloom. If it were not for the amusements, the people and painting, this would be just the moment to swallow a little Prusik acid. Just so you know, because I had to look this up, he's not talking about taking LSD when he talks about Prusik acid. He's actually talking about cyanide, which is a little bit more lethal in some ways. My love, a letter from you would change all this in an instant. You must write. The other day I went with Varna to a jeweller's to see about some rings of hers. The jeweller produced a lot of things to tempt us, and among them a pair of gold handcuffs made by Cartier. Naturally, I bought them. They have already had an enormous success. I produced them that same evening at the cheese party, where the hostess, Joy's sister, immediately asked to have them put on her wrists and went about very proud of herself for the rest of the evening. Actually, they are very well made and flatter and intrigue people. Ingborg was all over herself with excitement. They made a strange addition to my collection of pictures and objects which are already thought to be eccentric. These photos I'm sending were taken by Thea. I'm not very proud of them. One is of me and my nephew Sam, and the other in my studio sawing off the Caledonian cutie's head. I haven't taken any photos for a long time now. The light is usually so bad that one doesn't want to in the same way. Happily, my sun lamp, or rather your sun lamp, is so effective that I can work at any time, day or night. I am going to Brussels on Friday for three or four days. Man will be there for the opening of his show at the Palais des Beaux-Arts, but Brussels will be very different without you. Darling Lee, goodbye. Don't be so silent. It's not natural for a duke not to squawk sometimes. My love, I love you. Roland Monday, 13th of December Darling, I am trying to write this in the train on my way back from Brussels, where I have spent the weekend with Man, Maisin, the Van Hex, and a whole army of their friends. I went for the opening of Man's show and have had a very good time, again eating and drinking in the best Belgian style. I should have a lot to tell you if this damned train didn't make it so difficult. 
Also, darling, I'm getting sick of writing letters to which there is no reply. I've written so often, and not for more than a month received nothing from you. Have you even got mine? Or have yours gone to the bottom of the sea? I can't figure it out. But most likely it's just a question of out of sight, out of mind. I sent off your portrait last week, declaring its value as £30 for the customs and insuring it for £300 without them knowing. It will take 21 days to reach you, they say. So now you will be one degree more out of sight for me. We'll see if the rest follows inevitably. Goodbye, my love. It's no use trying to write like this. If you don't write to me to say why you don't write, I shall send back your next letter unopened, just to show I have got some Irish blood after all. Darling Lee, my love to you. Roland. I write now so as to post this in Belgium. Don't worry. Next episode, Roland finally receives his reply from Lee. And it's Christmas time. This episode is presented by me and the letters by Lee Miller were also read by me, Amy Bruhessen. Roland Penrose was played by Adam Grayson. Contributors were Dr Hilary Roberts, Senior Curator of Photography from the Imperial War Museums London and Anthony Penrose, Co-Director of the Lee Miller Archives and son of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose. The music was composed by David Cullen and the series is produced by Tolly Robinson. The copyright is copyright Lee Miller Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>